It's September 1993. Colombia are playing Argentina in Buenos Aires at the Estadio Monumental. It's a qualifying game for the 1994 World Cup. Normally, you wouldn't give Colombia much of a chance. Argentina have never lost a qualifier at home. Maradona taunts the Colombians before the game begins. Argentina arriba, Colombia abajo. But he might have taken a closer look at this amazing Colombian team, gifted with talents like Carlos Valderrama and his exuberant coiffure and the sinuous, fast strikers Freddy Rincon and Faustino Aspria. In the first half, Argentina looked like the better side and certainly the ones most likely to score. But on 40 minutes, Freddy Rincon, on the end of a fantastic crossfield pass from Valderrama, jigs his way round the goalkeeper and it's 1 0. In the second half, it turns into a flood 2 0, 3 0, 4 0. until Alfredo Valencia, once again on the end of a pass from Aspria, makes it 5-0. 5-0 to Colombia. My guest, the Colombian novelist, Juan Gabriel Vasquez, watched that game. It was 25 years ago, but he still savours the image of Maradona in the stands, who had no choice but to stand and applaud. So when his team lost 5-0 at their own stadium, it was really a great moment for us Colombians. They headed off for the 1994 World Cup in the United States with high expectations. We Colombians really thought that we would do great things. And then there was catastrophe. I'm David Goldblatt, and this is Game of Our Lives. In addition to being one of Colombia's leading contemporary novelists, my guest Juan Gabriel Vasquez is also a close observer of the relationship between football and politics in Colombia. And there's a lot to observe. Football is the most political of all sports, and it's just silly to pretend that you can separate sport and politics. Colombia is the most northerly in South America. For a brief moment in the 1950s, Colombian clubs were playing some of the best football in the world. The league itself was known as El Dorado and they had stopped paying transfer fees. Of course, they got kicked out of FIFA, but hey, who cares? Because now, unencumbered by these costs, they hoovered up football stars from all over the world and paid the money direct to the players. And they had the backing of the government, who saw it as the perfect distraction from the vicious civil war that had engulfed the country since 1949. In the middle of the most cruel civil conflict, you had to give people something. And football became it. It all came to an end in the mid-1950s. Colombia returned to the FIFA fold, the money dried up, the players went home and the quality of its football dipped. A single appearance at the 1962 World Cup was the nation's only minor success during the next three decades of failure. That is, until a rising industry gave the Colombian game new life. NBC Nightly News with Tom Brokaw. Cocaine Inc., a huge international business, 
run by a relatively small band of smugglers operating out of Colombia. American authorities say it was the Medellin cartel that ordered the murder of nine Colombian Supreme Court justices and the Attorney General. The rise of cocaine and the drug cartels in Cali and Medellin made Colombia virtually ungovernable in the 1980s. But perversely, it made Colombian football much better. I grew up as an adolescent knowing that in Colombia, football was linked to drug money. Pablo Escobar, of course, in particular. Yes, exactly. Drug lord Pablo Escobar. Pablo Escobar, Colombia's wealthiest man. The most powerful of the drug lords threw his support behind Atletico Nacional, the club team in Medellin. They ended up winning the Copa Libertadores, the leading club competition of South America. But it came at a price. In the late 80s, people began dying. And then the, the worst moment for my generation, the moment that really became a metaphor of everything that was wrong with the situation in society and football, was the murder of Andrés Escobar in 1994. Now, most cultural moments don't actually mean anything on their own, nor is their meaning settled at the moment of their happening. Their significance only emerges over time in the telling and the retelling of the tale, the placing of that moment in a longer narrative arc that gives it meaning. I wanted to know how a novelist, and especially a historical novelist like Vasquez, would define that murder, that moment. Where in the long history of Colombian politics and its football would it sit? And what kind of Colombia would emerge from the retelling of Andres Escobar's story? So we pick up where we left off. After the extraordinary qualifier in Argentina, the Colombian national team travelled to the United States for the 1994 World Cup. And then, catastrophe. So what happens is this. The, the score is 0-0. Is zero, zero. Colombia is playing uh, the United States at the Rose Bowl in Los Angeles. And on the 32nd minute, John Harkes makes a pass from the left-hand side of the field to Ernie Stewart, who is waiting almost, almost on the, uh, the penalty spot. But Andres Escobar reaches the ball first. He knows that if he lets that ball pass, Ernest Stewart will most likely score. So he throws himself on the ground, but he arrives just a fraction of a second too late. And so instead of blocking the ball, he pushes it towards the goal when Oscar Cordova, the goalkeeper, is already lying down in the ground and he's unable to, to stop that. And so we all saw the ball really moving incredibly, insultingly slow into the Colombian goal. And this is, this is what happened. And then he goes home back to Colombia and a few months later he's dead. Yes. As you say, Escobar had gone back to Colombia publicly declaring that he would not stay in the United States to do some tourism, to travel around a little bit as his other teammates did, because he wanted to face uh, the media, he wanted to face Colombian footballers and supporters, because he knew it had been his fault. His 
own goal had eliminated Colombia from the World Cup. So he went back to Colombia and he was just quietly sitting at this at this bar in the night in Medellin, near Medellin. And some guys in the next table began insulting him. And it turned out they were betters, people who had Um, how do you how, how would you say that? Um, They gambled a lot of money on Colombia winning, and right. the wrong result came up. Exactly, exactly. They were gamblers, and uh, he left. He decided not to engage in any kind of fights. Uh, and when he was sitting in his car in the parking lot, uh, the gambler's bodyguard just took out his gun and fired six times at Escobar, who was. Uh, just sitting there with, with his door closed and ready to leave the place. Um, I remember that moment. I remember the call that reached me. I was in the United States at the time uh, that reached me uh, to this hotel. And um, I remember thinking, a call that comes from Colombia in this, in this time, this time of bombings and killings and drug wars, cannot mean anything good. And it was my mother who was telling me that Andres Escobar had been shot and killed. Extraordinary. How did that, what did that leave you with at that moment? Well, it was, um, it was really very difficult. Uh, I grew up in Colombia during these drug wars. I was, I was 11 when Pablo Escobar started murdering ministers and, uh, and congressmen and judges and presidential candidates. So this was a part of my life growing up. But this, the murder of a football player that I admired, that I looked up to because I had, I had grown up playing in his same position, um, this really made me hit bottom in a way. It, it was, I think, one of the saddest uh, days of that time for me as I remember it. Which, is, of course, is disastrous for us as human beings, But as novelists, this is an extraordinary moment. And I know that you've yeah. talked of Conrad's novels in particular as a way in which the novel can go and investigate the dark spaces, the dark soul, both of individuals and of nations. And that you've even thought of tackling Escobar's murder in some fictional form. I wonder if a novel were to be written about the relationship between Colombian football, Colombian history... How, how do you imagine it? Where would Escobar feature? It, it, how else might one capture this extraordinary moment in Colombia's history? Well, that's, uh, that's a very good question. And this is the question that I'm trying to answer every day, trying to figure out how to write this novel. I think the novel is, is wonderfully suited to explore the relationship between private lives and politics and what we call history. And I think football is one of the greatest theaters of, of these relationships between our private passions and, and politics and the political moments in our countries. Uh, so how to come about it? This is, this is the question that I'm trying to answer. Of course, there's a parallel between drug money uh, coming in uh, into Colombian football and, uh, and being a part of it during this this great time of success really in Colombian football and what happened before uh, what happened in, in the 1940s and 1950s were also a kind of newfound wealth coming basically from coffee uh, 
fueled uh, the Colombian championship and Colombian teams. So it seems that these two moments have something in common. And I think a novel is a great place to explore this. And this is actually something you've done sort of structurally in uh, one of your earlier novels, The Informants, where you put a story from the 1940s about the incarceration of German nationals when Colombia joins the Allies in the Second World War and put that up against the experience of the 1980s and its own murky politics. I wonder also, is there, um, would there be a place, I'm interested to know if there would be a cameo in your book for some of the other key figures in that area of um, Colombian football. I mean, my own personal favourite is the extraordinary goalkeeper, René Higuita, uh, a man (laughs) known for his unbelievably exuberant goalkeeping haircuts and goalkeeping shirts. Where does he fit into your own narrative of Colombian football? Yes, yes. This is very important. Thanks for mentioning him. Uh, Higuita was a magician, really uh, we all remember his his famous scorpion in which he blocked balls by uh, jumping on his stomach and kicking the ball out uh, with his heels in an extraordinary move and very risky move i'm pleased that wasn't his coach yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he was a producer of massive heart attacks at the time um but at the same time as we had admired him and always wanted him to uh, play as well as he could, we realized that he was a friend of uh, the drug dealers and he publicly declared an allegiance to Pablo Escobar. And he even visited Pablo Escobar when he was in prison, um, at this prison that he built for himself in an extraordinary moment of magical realism in my country. He had a prison built for himself so he could turn in to the Colombian authorities. But he had a small football pitch built inside the prison. And he used to invite his favorite players. René Higuita was part of that gang. Leonel Álvarez, uh, another great Colombian player, was part of that gang. So we had this ambivalence. We had this idea that our heroes were also friends with the bad guys. And that that made it difficult growing up in Colombia in those years. I mean, in the case of someone like Francisco Maturana, who was the great coach who led Colombia to these uh, on these World Cup adventures, it's hard, in a way, to get away from Paulo Escobar and his like because you know these are the people employing you as the coach of your teams. And Maturana coaches indeed Atlético Nacional, um, Escobar's team to a Copa Libertadores yeah. championship, which is the sort of sets the scene for 1990. How did you feel and what did you make of Maturana as a coach and the kind of football he coached Colombia to play? Well, I think he was he was one of these brilliant coaches that are um, often misunderstood, probably for good reasons. One of his famous quotes during that time, during the World Cups uh, of 94 and 98, was after losing a game, he said, Well, you know, losing is winning a little bit. And I understood that, but most of the country didn't, uh, for good reason, because you don't want, as a football fan, you don't want a philosopher as a coach. We want somebody who wins games. Um, But despite that kind of thing, I I always thought he was brilliant, and he he took us to uh, brilliant places in, in our football history. 
I remember, David, I remember meeting once with Oscar Cordova, who was the goalkeeper in the 94 uh, World Cup, and he told me about Maturana's tears when the day before the infamous game where Escobar scored uh, against his own side, he got a call, Maturana got a call from the drug dealers who said, this is the lineup for tomorrow. If this other player that we don't like is included in the lineup, we will kill his family, we will kill your family, and we will kill you all when you come back. So Maturana, with tears in his eyes, had to tell this other player that he would not play the game the next day. And, uh, and well, uh, that's, I think, one of the moments you have to think about as a, as a Colombian football fan. Simply extraordinary to face that kind of that kind of pressure. Yeah. I mean, one of the things about Maturana is, you know, here is a black man in charge of the Colombian yeah. football team. And yes. there are not a lot of black folks in charge of anything in Colombia in 1990, as far as I know. And I wonder, you know, as in many countries, the minority of African roots is often overrepresented in uh, in the football world. And I just wonder, again, how does this play out in Colombia and whether the national team has been a force for inclusion in that sense, to remind Colombia of its own internal diversity. Yes, yes, uh, definitely, yes. I think, I think this is one of the great, one of the wonderful things about Colombian football. It has become one of the very few places, really, in which racial minorities not only are represented, but are successful and respected and... Uh, take center stage in the um, in the public life of my country this doesn't happen in politics this doesn't happen in the arts but sports in general i think and football in particular because of its own democratic nature i think it's one of the most democratic sports i can think of it has become that place um Yerimina, the the central defender right now playing for barca comes from very uh, humble origins a very, very poor family. And he's right now one of the uh, national sources of pride. Um, there, there has always been a strong relationship uh, in Colombia between a sort of national pride, a, a national good feeling and the, uh, and the national team. I remember sitting down to this, to this politician during the 2014 World Cup. And every time Colombia scored a goal, he would turn to me and say, uh, this is 300,000 votes more for the president. Because the president was in the middle of an election at that time. And of course, goals made people feel good. And people, when they feel good, they vote for whoever is in charge at that moment. Uh, so this was a very interesting reading of the Colombian psyche. It strikes me it's an extraordinary thing that so many Latin American nations seem to have their presidential elections coincide with the timetable yes. of the World Cup. I mean, Mexico, every four years they're holding federal legislative elections or it's the uh, it's the presidential election. And indeed, yes. as you say, in 2014, the second round of the election... Um, where the incumbent uh, Juan Manuel Santos is standing for re-election, happens a couple of days into the tournament. Um, let's just stop a moment and, and draw a picture, if we can, of Colombia now in 2014, because this is, you know, 16 years since the previous qualification. You yourself 
have been out of the country and suddenly here we are back at the World Cup. And I wonder how for you had Colombia changed in that decade or so? And did the football team that went to the 2014 World Cup in some sense reflect the nature of that change? Yes, the, the world was a different place in this sense in the in the 2014 World Cup. When you think about the relationship between that other generation of footballers, the ones who classified to the 1994 and 98 World Cups, the relationship between those teams and drug money and drug dealers, you start noticing a basic difference between that generation that I loved and admire and the one playing right now, uh, the generation of James Rodriguez and uh, Falcao. Yeah, the great Falcao. And David Ospina, who plays in England. These are kids that grew up very differently. The drug money was not a part of their uh, landscape in the sense that it was for Valderrama and Iguita and Andres Escobar. And they grew up, and this, I, I might be going a little bit on limb with this, but I think that made for a different work ethic. These, these new players are much more sensible, much more inclined to hard work, to learning, to be uh, less spontaneous and more disciplined and to build their careers away. I mean, they have been able to build their careers away from the problems of Colombian politics that existed in the, uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and they're very different in that way. It's interesting that the players have become more sober and more focused. But from what yes. I can see from the 2014 World Cup in Colombia, uh, the public hasn't. And certainly yes. it was reported that, you know, in Bogota in particular, after the opening match, I believe, against Greece, um, which Colombia wins, the partying is so insane that, you know, we have a number of homicides across the city and the mayor of Bogota declares that henceforth World Cup days will be, World Cup match days will be dry days. You won't be able to buy liquor. <laughs> I wonder, I mean, is this, is, is there a little bit of myth-making and exaggeration here or is it really that crazy during the World Cup in Colombia? Well, I must say you're extraordinarily well-informed, David. Yes, that is uh, as you say, and it's not an exaggeration. This is one of my great sources of frustration as a Colombian, that we have never been able to celebrate uh, good times without killing each other. After the Colombian team beat Argentina 5-0 in, in 1993, there were something like 50 violent deaths in the country uh, because we were celebrating. And because apparently we cannot celebrate without uh, heavy drinking and violence ensues. We, uh, we have, and this is very sad for me to say, we have a deep vein of violence in my country, which obviously explains 50 years of uninterrupted war. And that, that is also a part of football. Recently, we had this, this final, final of, of the national championship of the Colombian League, between Millonarios and Santa Fe. And uh, the way the authorities had to deal with that 
was to play two games. We had to play two games. One game in which only supporters of Millonarios were allowed to the stadium. And a second game in which only supporters of the other team were allowed. That was the only way we found of, you know, not creating the scenario of... Um, of a catastrophe and this is sad but of course you know uh, violence and football have always come hand in hand yeah there's also i i see in contemporary colombia another more minor narrative or story to be told that is more positive because football appears to have been a small but unquestionably a practical part of the peace process that over the last well almost decade has finally brought an end to the war on drugs and above all the struggle between the leftist guerrillas FARC and the national government. And uh, I read that football games between FARC and local communities, um, football games between FARC and even ex-paramilitaries is one of the ways in which um, people have been trying to encourage the guerrillas out of the jungle and back into everyday life. And I wonder whether there's any element of that in Colombia and also with the national team that for all the violence, there's also a moment of unity or euphoria or is that just, is it just wishful thinking on my part? Well, um, since it's a, a huge part of Colombian life, football has always been a part of the war. We all remember, for instance, the, the nasty sides to this, one of the most infamous massacres committed by the Colombian paramilitary was famous because what they did was uh, cut the heads off the, their enemies and the, the people in the village and play a football match with them. This was all over the news. On the other hand, football has always been that moment in which we let the guard down, in a sense, and we We talked to, to our neighbor, uh, somebody we, we would never talk to outside of a football stadium of, or a screen in which the Colombian national team is playing. Um, I think of a film, a comedy, a light comedy called Golpe de Estadio in Spanish, um, which is uh, untranslatable, sadly. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a film about a match between the guerrilla and the army soldiers and guerrilla members playing together and then uh, stopping the fight to watch the national team beat Argentina 5-0. The whole film turns around this. So, so it's a metaphor really of what, what football can uh, become for a country. This is a place where we meet each other. Well, it sounds like you don't have material here for a novel. You've got material <laughs> here for a trilogy when you're ready. I agree. I agree. One last question to think about, One is that Colombia have again qualified for the World Cup and I see that they have a pretty good group this time. You've got Japan yeah. and uh, I think it's Senegal, so not, not inconceivable to go through. And the opening game against Japan is just a couple of days before the second round in the 2018 Colombian presidential election. So I wonder, <laughs> what are you predicting for this team? What are you predicting for the elections? Is there a connection? The elections are unpredictable and uh, they will be uh, the most contested, the most polarized, the most dramatic, I think, in recent times because they will essentially become a second referendum on the peace process. 
and the country is divided. Half of the country doesn't want the peace process as it happened, uh, as it was signed, and the other half wants it, wants uh, the Colombian president to be somebody who will defend the peace process. And the country will break down along those lines. And that's unpredictable. I don't know what will happen. I do know that if nothing goes wrong, we will have James Rodriguez and Falcao at the top of their game and at the same time. You remember Falcao missed the last World Cup because of uh, a lesion. So so this this makes me hopeful. I think we will have a great time of, of people very strong in the head, uh, very, very mindful of um, their responsibilities, but also very knowledgeable in football terms. They have learned incredible amounts of things um, in the last years playing in Europe. And if they manage to make that happen in the pitch during the World Cup, I think we're in for, for great treats. And do you expect the presidential candidates to be uh, acting superfan and taking plenty of oh, selfies yes. with the uh, with the team? Oh yes, even if they don't know the first thing about football, they will do that. Definitely. <laughs> Juan Gabriel Vasquez, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I can't wait for your novel. What can I tell you? Crack on, man, and write it. The world, <laughs> the world is waiting for it, and the world needs it. Thank you very much. Thank you for the support. <laughs> And it has been wonderful to, to talk to you, David. Juan Gabriel Vasquez. This week, we've been to Bogota and Medellin, cities whose relationship with football is, to say the least, intimate and intense. Next week, we go from Medellin to Merseyside, to the city of Liverpool, where the relationship between politics and football is as intense and intimate as anywhere in the world. In the meantime, check out our website, gameofourlives.fm. Subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you liked it, write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to get the word out there to the people. Speaking of which, if you know someone who would like this show, spread the joy. Tell them. This show is a production of Jetty Studios. The senior producer is Raja Shah. Producer and sound designer, Meredith Hodanot. Our editors are Casey Miner and Karnish Thoreau. Kiana Mogadam does the social media. Graylin Brashear does the audience development. Graphic design is by Sophie Feller. Podcast operations are by Jordan Bailey. Game of Our Lives is recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, England, with engineering by Richard de Mowbray. Our music is from Bang Data. You can hear more from them at bangdata.com. Our executive producer is Julie Kane, and our general manager is Kazar Kantwala. I'm David Goldblatt, and I'll see you next week.